Well, good morning, everybody. The room is much more full than when I welcomed us before. I'm glad that you're here. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Rick was preaching, and he just wanted to remind people who are guests that he is not Pastor John Gallagher. <laughs> and so I want to say that as well. Uh, our, our lead pastor is actually on sabbatical right now, and so we have been in this space where we're sharing together and learning about Jesus in the book of Matthew and the ways that the miracles that he performed uh, really are lessons for us today, the lessons that we can take from them. So glad to be here, but I'm not John. Um, we're going to let's just get started um, with a very, very familiar miracle. So we'll open up to Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33, and you can follow along. Immediately... Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. No big deal. Jesus is walking on the lake. When the disciples, yeah, shortcut, right? Um, <laughs> he's walking on this lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So let's break it down a little bit, just for context. The miracle of Jesus walking on the water is actually reported in three of the Gospels. So if you look at this, this uh, passage, Matthew 14, it's also in Mark 6, verses 45 through 56, and John 6, 16 through 21. And this is the last year of what theologians believe is Jesus's three-and-a-half-year ministry. His ministry officially began at 30 years old, and then he was crucified by the time he was 33. He's been traveling and performing miracles all over and speaking and teaching and giving evidence that God has sent him. He's opening ancient texts that they've lived with their whole lives and providing them with wisdom and insight and understanding that is, quite frankly, astounding people. In short, he is blowing their minds. He's also gathered a group of ragamuffins, devoted to him, completely devoted to him, but they're also living very much in their own fear and their own humanity. Sounds a little bit like us, right? The world anticipated this Messiah, and they imagined him building up this army with the best of the best. And he's got these, you know, ragtag group of people, fishermen, a tax collector who's basically like the mafia back then, a reputation of shaking down people for what they wanted for themselves and for the, the uh, empire. 
But even in their flesh and their lack of understanding, they would later be called those who turned the world upside down. These hot messes, right? Anybody relate? I'm a little bit of a hot mess sometimes. Yeah, mm -hmm, I see those hands. But he, turned, he says those, these are those who turn the world upside down. But when we meet them in this story, they have just been a part of a huge public miracle. And they've witnessed the feeding over, over 5,000 people with just a few loaves and a few fish. So here's the scene. These multitudes of people have been dismissed by Jesus. He's told them, go on, y'all. And this big old public miracle. And uh, after these 5,000 have been told to disperse, he also tells the disciples, you all, go ahead of me. Go to the other side of the sea. I'm going off to pray. Sometime during the night, these disciples experience some hardships, keeping them from making headway because the winds are so strong. And one of the accounts tells us that the disciples were about three to four miles away from the shore in the middle of all this. Another tells us that the seas were rough because the wind was heavy. Tradition tells us that they were out there for a while, struggling and not being able to get very far. Anybody's been struggling and not being able to get very far in their life? Then they see this figure walking on the water, and spoiler alert, we know it's Jesus. Um, but they didn't at first. They didn't recognize him. And they think it's a ghost, and they start to lean into their fear. And Jesus tells them not to be afraid. And Peter says, if it's you, then tell me to come on out. And he does. So Jesus uh, tells him to come out, and he does. And then Peter falters. That's what we hear a lot when people preach this message, that he falters, so Jesus helps him. And suddenly, everyone on the boat believes in this Jesus that they've actually been following around, seeing him do lots of miracles this whole entire time. So I don't know why this is the thing, but this is the thing for them. I love so much, I know we're focusing on Matthew, but I love so much Mark's account that tells us that Jesus started walking on the water. He literally meant to pass them by. He was not planning on hanging out. He was just going to walk on across and like, see you when you get there, you know. I'll see you when I see you. But because they cried out in fear, he addresses them. And I think that is so incredible of our God that notices, notices us in these moments of fear and just like comes to us in that space. But he was planning on walking by. And I have to admit that I giggle a little bit about that because of his compassion. He's there. But I think about him just being like, oh, okay, well, y'all struggling, but I'm going to keep on going. <laughs> but he recognizes that they cry out. Finally, in John's version of the story, there's another miracle that's reported with this. That after all the things happen with Peter, and he's sinking, and Jesus takes his hand and gets him back up, then Jesus enters the boat, that immediately they are in the place that they've been trying to get to for like six hours, right? What a miracle that here is God, touching land just like that. Uh, pretty incredible. So we are in this space right now where this huge public miracle just took place. And the miraculous is now happening in the inner circle of Jesus. So I have kind of three things that I want to point out in the story that I noticed. And I'm sure you have noticed many other things. But I just want to talk about a couple of things that I've mentioned, three things in particular. But first, I have a question for you. What was Jesus doing while the disciples were commanded to cross the sea? Just yell it out. Praying. Y'all been paying attention. All right. He was praying alone with God. And I think it's important to note that getting alone before the Father was a regular rhythm of sustenance for Jesus, as evidenced by the Gospels. We find throughout the Gospels that Jesus is praying a lot anytime he's alone with the Lord. 
He is praying before he calls the 12 disciples. He's praying before the transfiguration. He's praying alone with the Lord, uh, with God teaching the disciples how to pray. Before all of these things, he's praying alone with God. Even before the garden, uh, before the garden of Gethsemane, he's praying and in the garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus is often portrayed as going off to a solitary place and praying alone. So going off and alone, he goes and then performs these huge miracles. And this is not unusual behavior for him. So this wouldn't have been strange for him to walk off. But my first point is that we see Jesus modeling for us the power and the necessity of prayer. The one who spoke the world to become the one who put flesh on and walked among us, the one who currently sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, shows us that getting alone with the Father is a necessity in our lives. He shows us that wrapped in human form, his priority is communion with the Father. In Hebrews 5, we see that God has named Jesus as a priest forever. And we see evidence of that rhythm of his prayer in this verse. His example of reliance on God and consistent intimacy through communication with God is an important observation. So Hebrews 5, 7 through 10 says, In the days of his humanity, he offered up both prayers and pleas with loud cries and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was, was heard because of his devout behavior. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him, being designated by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I like to think about this. Jesus praying for us, pleading for us, working out his own suffering and the suffering he sees around him in obedience to the Father in times of solitude. We find in Genesis 3 a picture of God walking in the cool of the garden to commune with those that he created. Adam and Eve hide, of course, in their nakedness, but we know that this is something that they expect, that God is walking with them in the cool of the garden. God's intention is intimate relationship with us, and Jesus models this for us. Why has it become so easy for us? to make communication with God an afterthought or a chore. We spend more time updating social media statuses, worrying, consuming media than our time with God. But I also want to be careful to move here because there are people in our midst who have experienced incredible church hurt from shame, from people being legalistic and telling them how they need to spend their time with God alone and what that's like. And they're hurting in the pews next to you and they're hurting online in churches that have been shamed, shaming people into conformity or some burdensome, burdensome measurement of our loyalty to God, I want to say that's not okay. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. Jesus shows us that God desires to have intimacy with us. It's not out of manipulation, not out of obligation, but simply because he desires for us to know him and to be known, to trust him, to come to him. If Jesus spent his time in this way, and I want to follow Jesus, then it makes sense that I should be in this space, that it's imperative that I learn how to commune with God alone, that I put God above everything, that in his human experience, the scaffolding around everything that he did was being with the Father. 
The second thing that I want to talk about is power. Uh, if you were here last week, if you didn't, get your whole life because you need to watch the video. Pastor Caleb did this incredible job of taking us through the miracle that preceded this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. So that's why in the beginning of this it says immediately after because something happened before that. Immediately after, there is this incredible miracle. And Pastor Caleb just walked us through. Um, and so you should check out the recording if you didn't. It was so incredible that I shared it with our staff at Step by Step. And I was like, y'all need to watch this. It was so good. And it's things that we've all heard before, but we need to hear it again and again and again, right? He shared that Jesus indiscriminately cared for the crowd, not giving preferential treatment or deciding who deserved it or didn't, but everybody got fed. And he also, Pastor Caleb also reminded us that the gospel is more about power and authority than about ethics. Our God isn't just a nice guy, right? He's not just loving, he's righteous. And he's justice. He's powerful. And we see the echoes of the power of God and the one that he sent. There's biblical evidence. So let's start, and we're going to go through a couple of scriptures really quick, and I'm just going to point out some things. That in these scriptures, we see that there's power over the natural, and that means that equates with power. So as these disciples are watching Jesus, they're recognizing, ooh, here's this power in the natural. This equates with power because we know this because this is in our ancient text. In Genesis 1, 6 through 7, it says, Then God said, Let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And that is what happened. God made this space to separate the waters of the earth from the waters of the heavens. Here we are, nature, right? In the, in the natural and in the supernatural, here is God. In Joshua 3, 13 through 17, just going to point out a couple of them. And it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priest who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. So we're seeing this miracle of these priests being able to walk into this water, and the water stands as a heap, which also is reminiscent of another uh, scripture that we'll talk about in just a moment. And then we also see in 2 Kings, verse uh, two, uh, two, Kings 2, 6, 16, 6 through 16, Then Elijah said to him, Stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elisha took off his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry land. This would not have been a surprise at all to the disciples to put that together, that here is Jesus taking command of the natural elements. And of course, the famous one in Exodus 14, 10 through 18, I'll just look at 15, the verse 15, and the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. So we continue to see this again and again and again. Luke 8, 20 through 
22 through 26, Jesus is taking a nap in the boat. Y'all remember this one? He's napping, and people are getting anxious because the seas are rocky. It's high. They're afraid they're going to drown. And they call to him, and he says, all right, he calms the sea. And then he says, you have little faith. And they say, he commands, he commands even the winds. Who is he? So they're also starting to question. We see these over and over again. So when Jesus walks on the water, it's a sign to the disciples of who he really is and who he says he is, and that's power. Throughout the Bible and history, we know people believed in deities controlling things, like all the things in the natural, but they hadn't actually witnessed someone doing it. The Bible does not tell us why, like I said before, this particular miracle was the thing for them, that they recognized him and his power, but the disciples became certain and it changed their hearts and their minds. So Jesus isn't someone who's just a nice guy that we should follow because he's compassionate and loving. He's not just the Jesus that welcomes the children. He's also a powerful creator who has taken, given power to take away and to give. He marks us as his in the courtroom of the accused. He is powerful and not just a nice guy. One of my favorite quotes from Brennan Manning is this. I want neither a terrorist spirituality that keeps me in a perpetual state of fright about being in right relationship with my Heavenly Father, nor a sappy spirituality that portrays God as such a benign teddy bear that there is no aberrant behavior or desire of mine that he will not condone. I want a relationship with the Abba Jesus the Abba of Jesus, who is infinitely compassionate with my brokenness and at the same time an awesome, incomprehensible, and unwieldy mystery. That is the Jesus that we serve. We also know that we will never be immune to the storms of life. Not one time. The loved ones who prayed and fasted and somebody still passes away, the diagnosis that you get that you didn't expect, we do not see the answers to something that we've been begging God for for years. Those are some of the storms of life. Stress, anxiety, the storms of life that we face, being disappointed. We're not immune from them just because we love Jesus. So some of you know that I have three jobs, which is why I don't preach very often. Um, I'm an associate pastor here uh, at Embrace, but I'm also the executive director of a ministry that serves young single moms called Step by Step. Many of you support, and this church actually supports Step by Step, and we serve uh, young moms ages 12 to 24 and their kids. But I also have a consulting business, and I get to work with organizations and facilitate a lot of meetings, especially between people who don't like each other, which is my favorite thing. Um, so if you have a big group of people who don't like this other big group of people, call me. That's what I love to do, and do some strategic planning. And last week, I had the pleasure, the honor, to be blown away by somebody that I worked with when I worked with this organization. I met a guy named Mike Von Allen. This is what Mike says. 24 years ago, when I was 24 years old and seemingly invincible, I was blindsided by the arrest and conviction of a violent sexual assault. I served 11 years in prison and 16 years on parole before the Kentucky Innocence Project uncovered a textbook example of mistaken identity. In 2010, and after 27 years as a convicted sex offender, I was fully exonerated of the crime. Knowing how imperfect the judicial system is, I was compelled to protect the innocent from being executed and begin advocating for the abolishment of the death penalty. 
So I'm sitting in a room with this guy. <laughs> and I'm there to do some strategic planning, and all of a sudden, he blows me away with his life. And he begins to talk about the fact that while he was imprisoned, wrongly accused, no one believing him, no seemingly end to the suffering, and the things that he had to do to be able to survive, and what he's even doing now on the outside to try to survive, all of the things that he suffered, all of the things that he experienced, he says he remembers that his mama was praying for him the whole time, and that his mom would be talking about Jesus all the time in his life, and other family members would be talking about he needed to have a relationship with Jesus long before he went in, into, into incarceration. And he said he never, ever believed it. But there in that place, in that place of desolation, is where he actually did meet Jesus, where he actually had experiences with Jesus in this broken and unfair system, system and situation that he was in. He had an opportunity to experience Jesus, this storm of life that he was in. Many of us will never fully understand what he went through. But what he had to do and how he had to get out of there and how he recovered, he sat in the middle of a storm and he was able to find peace. Peace is not found in the absence of the storm, but in the presence of Jesus. And our Jesus is power, powerful. Jeffrey Curtis Poor says this, in the presence of Jesus is the power of God. This is why the disciples exclaim, truly, you are the son of God. And then one of my favorite theologians that I'm starting to get to know, thanks to Pastor Christina introducing me to him, uh, John Golden Gay says this, the sequence of stories involves the exercise of authority. No doubt the occasions also involve compassion to which the gospels occasionally refer. Yet the people who had impure spirits or were sick will have had other people in their families and communities who showed them compassion. What they needed was not compassion, but power. And it is this power that has the prominence in the stories. Jesus heals people with terrible afflictions and with trivial ones. As, he, as, his, exorcisms, as exorcism, his exorcisms are manifestations of supernatural power, so are his resuscitations. His marvels pr provide evidence that his message is true. He is like Moses or Elisha, only more, or Elisha, only more, so he walks on water. Like Elijah, but also claims a storm. There's claim, also calms a storm there in the manner of Yahweh, putting down the powers of disorder embodied in the tumultuous waters of the sea. It provokes the disciples to ask, so who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? While his actions leave the disciples bemused, they subsequently realize that the actions are ones that require people to bow in homage and declare, you are the son of God. So we're not talking about just a nice Jesus. We're talking about power. We seem to want to serve a God who is supernatural while putting our faith solely in the natural. And we can't do that if we want to serve this God. He's power. The third point that I want to make is Jesus isn't afraid of our doubt, and he shares in our distress. This is a message that I didn't receive very much in churches as I came, through, came to know the Lord. Uh, I was always taught that Jesus doesn't want any of our doubt, and that we should be absolutely sure of every single thing that we believe and how we believe it, and that in our distress, he wants us to just trust him. 
So there were these three accounts of the miracles, this miracle, this particular miracle that we're talking about in the Gospels. So I share that with you already. But all three of them had something really in common that I didn't want to gloss over. They all talk about the disciples being frightened. They walked with Jesus, y'all, on a regular degular. Every day, they walk with him. They see these miracles, and yet they still experience fear. The disciples on the boat had just seen him perform this incredible miracle, and they were actually a part of the miracle. Their faith had to be a part of that miracle to pass out that bread and that fish. Yet a few few hours later and about four miles outside, this miracle worker and experiencing this miracle, they succumbed to doubt and fear. Then we see Peter bravely step out in faith and ask the Lord to call him. And I've heard this preached about a hundred times in different ways. And Peter somehow is always made out to be this weak figure who faltered because he didn't keep his eyes on Jesus. And if he just kept his eyes on Jesus, then everything would have been okay. And that's what we should just do is just keep your eyes on Jesus. You're not ever going to have any doubt or fear. Everything's going to work out just fine. Preachers usually go on to shame us for our doubt and say that we need to give God control. Rarely have I heard it preached that every last one of us has doubts and that God isn't afraid of them. So Paul had a radical experience and went from someone who persecuted and helped murder Christ's followers to someone who gave up everything from Christ. Yet, he had doubts and fears. So let's look at Philippians 4, verses 10 through 14. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now, at last, your care for me has flourished again, Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to be abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both abound and to suffer need. I can do these things through all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress." Okay, like he's following God, so how, why is he distressed? Because I'm not supposed to be distressed as a Christ follower, right? But here it is. If you leave with nothing else today, I want you to know that Jesus isn't mad at you because you doubt. His questioning the disciples, yeah, you can clap for that. He ain't mad at you, okay? He loves you. His questioning the disciples about their lack of faith, and in this account, his asking Peter why he was doubting was not a rebuke in disgust, but an invitation to go deeper in trust and faith. Do you think Jesus doesn't understand your cynicism or lack of trust in the world? He walked this world. He gets it. He's with us. He gets it. I would much rather focus on the fact that Peter knew exactly what to do when his faith faltered. He asked Jesus for help. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. 2 Corinthians 12.1-10 says this, I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, 
I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up in a paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weakness. Uh Uh-oh. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so no one think more of me than is warranted by what I say, do or say, or because of these surprisingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in, result, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Your weaknesses do not scare God. <laughs> they actually allow that power from the Lord to make you stronger, to strengthen you. Jesus enters into our distress period. Peter is sinking and becomes distressed, and he asks Jesus for help. And even though they witness miracles every single day walking with him, they fall back to doubt, just like you, just like me. Many of the disciples were avid fishermen who recognized the dangers of those rough seas. They knew exactly what it meant to be hindered and to be having this high, these high winds in front of them. And they feared the unknown, walking on the water, something they'd never seen. So I don't know about you, but if I'm struggling for six hours, I'm thinking my muscles might hurt a little bit. I'm thinking that um, even though I hang out with Jesus, I might be kind of losing my resolve a bit. They're back in the place of fear and feeling alone, and all while Jesus sits at the feet of his father. This story preaches a failure of Peter so many times is actually a triumph. Trusting in the Lord and our... our, uh, understanding his lack of control exactly is what Peter demonstrates. Peter puts his faith in the Lord by getting out of the boat. And we have a tendency to trust what we see, but not the unseen. And sometimes we believe that God will do it for others, but not for us. Let me go ahead and say that again. Sometimes we believe that God will do it for others and he won't do it for us. I know I'm not the only one who's been in that space. So maybe we believe the lie that we're not good enough Christians or that we don't deserve his love, that we have to perform in order to earn it. Maybe we came from families of origin that were like that or from faiths that taught us that, that we have to be 100% certain of every single thing in the Bible to be able to be seen by him. And I'll tell you this, Peter is the only disciple that is recorded to have walked on the water. He is nearly always cast as a villain or some weakling who needs to get it together, yet he is the only disciple recorded that stepped out of the boat. It is okay that you have doubt and fear. And yes, the Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please him. But Jesus spends his ministry trying to lead everyone into deeper faith and leading us into the circumstances that will boost our faith. It isn't trickery. He's not some big Loki in the sky waiting for us to fail. Jesus' compassion was activated when his disciples cried out in fear, when Peter leans into his weakness and cries out. And he can do the same for you. 
how quickly that you and I forget, I'm going to put you in with me, how quickly that we forget his faithfulness, even though we've seen him perform lots of miracles in our lives before, and we return to fear too, just like them. How often do we neglect to build our faith and settle for what we can control? How often do we forget from where he brought us and the miracles that he's done? Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. He defines cheap grace as the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline. Living this life as a Christ follower requires discipline and prayer. It requires building up of our faith so that we can trust the Lord. It, recalls, it calls us to be set apart from other people so people will know what Christian faith looks like. And to live those lives in this weird, hard, messed up, broken world and culture is going to be hard and it's going to require us to sometimes be really weak. Jesus' actions thwart cheap grace and cause us to build resilience in a world filled with self-reliance. And that's hard, right? To build resilience takes a lot more than just like believing what we see in front of us. So as I start to close, I really am going to start to close. Some pastors say that and they're not, but I really am. As I start to close, I want to pause at this. Though Jesus definitely had a mission to preparing his disciples for his departure and preparing us to be his hands and feet, he also recognizes our humanity and uncanny ability to limit his divinity in the world that is bent on controlling the outcomes in the natural. Jesus went alone to be with the Father and calls us into power and blessed assurance through intimacy. He's not weak, he's power. He filled his purpose through some doubters. He has fulfilled his purpose. He's compassionate with our doubt, but calls us to something greater. So I have three questions, kind of reflection questions that I want you to take with you that I believe can really start to deepen this message today. And so the first one is, what are the doubts of my heart that I've held back from God? Some of us have been taught to hold back those doubts from God because oop, we're not a good Christian if we don't have it all together. When have I been the one who wouldn't get out of the boat? Sometimes we're, you know, totally complacent and allowed to just stay on that boat. Peter got out. Everybody else stayed in. When have I been in that, in that situation? And then finally, what are tangible ways I can build faithful endurance in a world filled with self-reliance? This is a me, 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 me society. And when we come together on Sunday mornings, we try to lean out of that, right? When we come together in community with our groups or people that we work with, and we try to lean into not doing it on our own and lean into being communal and lean into not, not having this kind of space where we rely just on ourselves. But then we fall right back into it, into worry and doubt and fear, just like the disciples. But Jesus knows. He knows that we are prone to wander, right? We're prone to wander. doesn't make him angry at us. It makes him lean in. When we call to him, his compassion is activated. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.